Good morning, and welcome to the Revelation Power Podcast. I'm author and host Kevin Hopkins, and this is episode 78, our eighth episode in the book of Job. And we today are in Job chapter 11. This will be the first of the counsel that we hear from Job's friend Zophar. And you can tell that the attitude of Job's friends gets progressively worse as Job refuses to hear them. You'll also notice that there's a little pattern that the counsel of each friend takes one chapter and then Job's response takes two. That Job feels the need to really defend himself and to make his case and to and to argue his innocence. And it's it's a constant reminder that you can't prove your not guilt, right? It's why in our legal system, people are innocent until proven guilty. You have to prove guilt. You can't really prove a negative. You can't prove someone's unguilt because they're clean and and there's no way to prove clean. There are evidences, there are signs, but they could be an act, you don't know. And because you don't know what's underneath the surface of a person, in our culture today, the council culture has made it their, their mission to ruin people based on what you can't see about them, to intimate that they are something that they're not. And, and because there's a risk, but from their employer, their organization, their friend group, their spouse, their kids, because there's a risk, if they are that person, people tend to distance from them or fire them or throw them out of their church or whatever the response is when the question is raised about their not guilt. And they can't prove they're not guilt. And and those who try, those who argue against the lie, only give the lie credibility. And the wisdom of the book of Job is, don't argue against lies. Don't feel the need to respond to them all, especially not two chapters at a time to one chapter of two verses of accusation. This response by Zophar, it's actually Zophar's first counsel to Job, is kind of uh, unique because you won't find a lot here to say, well, that's not God. God's not like that. God didn't do that. Zophar's wisdom is, is pretty good here. So let's dive into it. Chapter 11, verse 1, and see what Zophar has to say. Now it was the turn of Zophar from Namath. What a flood of words. Shouldn't we put a stop to it? Should this kind of loose talk be permitted? Job, do you think you can carry on like this and we'll say nothing? That we'll let you rail and mock and not step in? You claim, my doctrine is sound and my conduct impeccable. How I wish God would give you a piece of his mind, tell you what's what. I wish he'd show you how wisdom looks from the inside, for true wisdom is mostly inside. But you can be sure of this, you haven't gotten half of what you deserve. Do you think you can explain the mystery of God? 
Do you think you could sit down and draw a picture diagramming Almighty God himself? God is far higher than you can even imagine, far deeper than you can come close to comprehending. He stretches out further than the Earth's horizons. He's wider than the endless ocean. If he happens along, throws you in jail, hauls you to court, could you do anything about it? He sees through vain pretensions, spots evil from afar off. No one pulls the wool over his eyes. Hollow men, hollow women, they'll wise up about the same time mules learn to talk. Still, if you set your heart on God and reach out to him, if you scrub your hands of sin and refuse to entertain evil in your home, you'll be able to face the world unashamed and keep a firm grip on life, guiltless and fearless. You'll forget your troubles. They'll be like old faded photographs. Your world will be washed in sunshine, every shadow dispersed by dawn. Full of hope, you'll relax, confident again. You'll look around, sit back, and take it easy. Expansive, without a care in the world, you'll be hunted out by many for your blessing. But the wicked will see none of this. They're headed down a dead-end road with nothing to look forward to. Nothing. So that's all pretty wise, right? Zophar doesn't do too bad. But his first words show you that Job's friends are really getting tired of his bloviating, of his endless arguing. What a flood of words. Shouldn't we put a stop to it? Should this kind of blabber be permitted? Zophar is accusing Job of talking loose about God, of, of missing the point, and Job is. Zophar's really kind of right on point here, but his temper is very short with Job now. Job, do you think you can yammer on like this and we'll say nothing? That we'll let you rail and mock and not step in? And then, having accused Job of mocking God, Zophar turns around and mocks Job. You claim, my doctrine is sound and my conduct impeccable. How I wish God would give you a piece of his mind. Well, Again, these guys ought to watch out what they what they wish for, because that's coming. God is going to give Job a piece of his mind, and, and it's not going to be pretty. God's going to call him to account for his yammering on. Zophar can't do it. He wishes God would, wishes God would tell Job how the cow eats the cabbage. Well, he's going to. And then, and then Zophar says something very, very wise. I wish he'd show you how wisdom looks from the inside. For true wisdom is mostly inside. Wow. I wish he would show you how wisdom looks from the inside. See, there's that point that I made at the very beginning. That, that in the New Testament, Jesus tells his disciples not to judge. He said that men always judge improperly because they can only see the outside. But God sees the heart. And so God's judgments about a person are always accurate. You see, wisdom comes from compassion and empathy, from trying to understand what's inside another person, and from knowing very well what's inside yourself. Job knows that he's innocent. But Job also knows that he's always been afraid of God. 
that he always thought that God would step in and smash him if he did the worst, the, the least little thing wrong. Job was always afraid that God would smash his children if one of them just unintentionally sinned. And so every time they've been together, Job has, has gotten up early in the morning and taken 10 animals and killed them and sacrificed them and, and prayed that God would forgive each of his children lest they sin and God strike them down. Now they've all been stricken down. And and it it really defies Job's categories. It defies his ability to define what's going on. He can't do sense-making with what he sees. It's too overwhelming. And so he's descended into depression. He's forgotten to call on God for help. Still hasn't done that. He's not going to. And Zophar says, I wish God would show you what wisdom looks like from the inside. Because his friends used to believe that Job knew that. Job used to say wise things. Job used to help other people deal with hardship. Job used to be the one who lifted everybody else. And now he can't even hear his own words. And that leads Zophar to think Job never really understood wisdom from the backside at all. Well, I don't think it's that Job didn't understand. I think it's that he's too overwhelmed to remember or to even find wisdom for himself. It's really hard for you and I to find wisdom for ourselves. I don't know why that is. It's much easier for someone who sees our situation from a detached point of view to speak wisdom into our lives for any situation. It's why counselors are so helpful they can look at the situation from the outside and say, well, did you think about doing this? One of my daughters was looking for a husband, hoping a husband would come along at least. And she went to see a Christian, I'm doing air quotes here, matchmaker. And this guy was like the Christian Hitch, if you've seen the movie Hitch. He charged quite a bit of money for someone to be his client, but you only paid him one time and he worked with you until you'd found your spouse, until you were engaged. So it was an interesting deal. He only took on so many clients and and he agreed to take on one of my daughters as a client. So before she paid him any money, they sat down and he said, let me assess whether or not you're really a good candidate for what I do. Tell me about the guy that you're looking for. And she said, well, he's, he's got a sincere faith. He, he's busy working in his church and reaching out to the marginalized and the needy. And he prays. And the guy said, oh, so you're looking for a spouse who prays. She said, absolutely. It's the most important thing. He's like, oh, okay. So when you've prayed about it, what has God said to you about him? And she stared at him with a blank stare. He's like, you have prayed about this, haven't you? She's like, well, not like that. He said, well, if if you want a guy who prays, shouldn't you be praying in order to find him? And she said, I never thought about that before in my life. 
He's like, well, I think that'll solve the problem. So I'm not going to charge you anything. You go pray about it and see what shows up. And I'm telling you, within a year, she had met and was marrying the guy she'd been looking for the whole time. It's interesting that from the inside, we don't always see the wisdom that we need. And someone from the outside catches it so quickly. Zophar sees exactly what Job needs, and Job has no clue. And Zophar says, I wish God would show you what wisdom looks like from the inside, because true wisdom is pretty much on the inside. He's right. When I'm not fortified, when I'm not rested, when I'm not nourished, when I'm not centered in my spiritual relationship with God through Christ, wisdom is really hard to find because my insides are stirred up. And if something has stirred me up, wisdom for myself is almost impossible. It's interesting that that friends can come to me so wound up about something and it's easy to counsel them. It's easy to provide them some wisdom. But when it's me, it's harder. I wish God would show me sometimes what wisdom looks like from the inside. Then Zophar goes on, but you can be sure of this. You haven't gotten half of what you deserve. Now, the first time I read that, I was tempted to say, oh, wait, that's not, oh, yes, it is. That's the truth. That's the absolute truth. That's a New Testament truth. The Zophar couldn't have known how true that was. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That if we got what we deserved, each of us would have been drowned when we were pups. We wouldn't have seen a week of life if we got what we deserved. We were born into sin. We were born fallible. We were born lost. We were born broken. And and from the age of two on, we just made it worse, right? You ever want to think, you ever want to see the carnal nature? You ever want to see the true nature of sin? Babysit a two-year-old for a, a few days. Good heavens. If I got what I deserved, I'd be gone, wiped off the face of the earth. I wouldn't have made it very far. And then, every time I've messed up since, what I really deserved was judgment. What I really deserved probably was death. It was at least God's ire. But I haven't gotten half of what I deserve. Because... I asked Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior. And the Bible says that at that moment, I was then hidden in Christ. So that when God looks at me, he doesn't see my sin. He sees the righteousness of Christ. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might be the righteousness of God. When God looks at me, he sees righteousness, but it's the righteousness of Christ. It's not mine. If he saw my righteousness, my filthy rags, I'd get what I deserve, and I would have died on the cross. I remember a, a drama that I saw uh, 20 years ago when, when everybody was doing a little drama right before the sermon in their church, right? The hip churches all had a little drama team. It's, it's fallen out of vogue, and I kind of miss it because... So many of those little sketches were really valuable. But I was in a friend's church, and these cowboys came out on the platform. And they sat down at a table, and they started playing cards. And one of them was accused of cheating. 
and another one shot him on the platform in the church. And the fake gun was pretty loud. Got everybody's attention. He dropped dead on the platform and the other cowboys carried him off and the judge walked into the room, the hanging judge. And he said, you just shot that man in cold blood. You're going to hang for that. The guy said, no, wait, that's not the story. He cheated. He was stealing from me. Judge said, well, I don't see it that way. It looks like cold-blooded murder to me. You're guilty. You're going to hang. And so the stage crew rolls a gallows out onto the stage. And I don't know how they did it, but it was really real. And and they put the guy up on the gallows, and they put the noose around his neck, and they, they were just about to pronounce his sentence. And this other cowboy comes walking into the off the wings onto the stage, and he says, hold up there a minute, mister. What's that guy guilty of? Well, he shot a man, cold blood. We're going to hang him. He said, well, before he pronounce his sentence, let me take his place. You let him go. Hang me instead. I'll take his punishment for him. And they said, mister, are you sure? He's going to die. You're going to get hanged. He's like, I'm sure. I, I don't want him to suffer for this. I'll, I'll take the punishment. And so however they worked it out, they made it look absolutely like they hanged that guy on the stage in the church. It was fairly shocking. It was very impactful. 20 years later, I remember it crystal clear. As he's swinging on the rope, the the guilty cowboy looks at the judge and says, I ain't never heard of a man taking another man's hanging. The judge said, me either. Cowboy looks at one of the other cowboys and says, who was that fella? One of them said, well, I reckon that's that cowboy they call Jesus. And the cowboy, everybody walks off the stage except the cowboy and the guy hanging on the rope. And the cowboy says, should have been me, mister. Should have been me. And and then the stage goes dark, and in seconds, that's all gone, and the pastor's out to preach a message on the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. It was really meaningful and and impactful. And Zophar hits it on the head. You haven't gotten half of what you deserve because there's grace for us. And, And when he says this, I suddenly realize God protected Job. The devil would have killed him. The devil hates us. The devil hates anybody that loves God because he doesn't love God and God loves you and God does not love the devil. So the devil is filled with jealous hatred at God's children and would kill us if he could. He would have killed Job if God had let him, but God protected him all along the way. You can strike anything he has, but you can't touch him. Okay, you can touch him, but you can't kill him. God extended grace to Job, even though it's really hard to see in all the hardship that Job has to endure because the devils attacked him. But God extended him grace. If God didn't extend mankind grace, we never would have made it past the original sin in the garden. Think about that for a minute. Then Zophar goes on. Do you think you can explain the mystery of God? Could you draw a picture of him? He's higher, deeper, wider, more vast than you can ever imagine. You just said if he threw you in jail, you'd have nobody. Well, you're right. What could you do about it? 
if God was bent on punishing you, what could you do about it? He sees through vain pretensions, spots evil a long ways off. No one pulls the wool over his eyes. Hollow men, hollow women, they'll wise up about the same time donkeys learn to talk. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's kind of a reference, although the story of Balaam hasn't taken place yet historically when Job is written. It's kind of interesting that here's hollow men and hollow women like Balaam, who's, who's supposedly a seer prophesying for God, and then suddenly God moves in on him and says, hey, when the king comes to you next, you shut your mouth. And, and Balaam says, oh, well, okay. And, and God wants to catch Balaam's attention on the road and sends an angel with a flaming sword and the donkey goes one way and Balaam beats him and the angel moves up the road and stands in the path and donkey goes the other way and Balaam beats him and the, the angel goes a little ways up the path further where the donkey can't turn either way, stands in his way and the donkey lays down in the road. And Balaam just goes to beating the whale out of that donkey and then the donkey talks. And then the donkey talks. And Balaam wises up. Hmm. Interesting little connection here. But still, Job. But still. If you set your heart on God, Zophar says. If you set your heart on God and reach out to him. If you scrub your hands of sin. And refuse to entertain evil in your home you'll be able to face the world unashamed with a firm grip on life. You'll forget your troubles. They'll be like old faded photographs. We can't forget, right? There's always memory. And, and in some of our lives, it's like a stinking videotape that every time we think we're making progress, the devil turns it on and plays that videotape about how bad we were. But when we're guiltless and fearless, they become like old faded photographs. They're memories that don't have an impact on us anymore. I don't know that the world is ever washed in sunshine, every shadow dispersed by dawn, but I do believe that the person who walks righteously can relax, can be confident, can understand that God loves them. And I don't know about the whole once saved, always saved thing, but I do believe that the person who's walking guiltlessly, innocently, fearlessly before God isn't afraid to sin. He doesn't live his life saying, Oh, I better not sin. What if I sin? Because he lives his life so far inside that line. Sinning isn't the option. He's looking to do righteousness. He's looking to accomplish God's will. He doesn't go out and, and live right on the borderline of what's acceptable to God to see what he can get away with. That's not his agenda anymore. And so sin doesn't have power in his life. He doesn't have to sin in word, thought, and deed every day because he lives way far away from that line of temptation and danger. He didn't just build a wall. He moved away. You'll be able to face the world unashamed and keep a firm grip on life, guiltless and fearless. I love that step in Alcoholics Anonymous. We took a searching and fearless moral inventory. 
I just hope that through this process, in this book of wisdom, you'll take some time to take a searching and fearless moral inventory. When I get up in the morning, before I say my prayer, I think, Lord, is there anything in my life that I need to just get rid of today, that I need to stay away from, that I need to distance myself from? Before I pray, would you show it to me and then let me have the wisdom to pray and turn it over to you? Then I can go through my day guiltless and fearless. I've handed it all over to God. Anything that he asked me to stay away from, I just step away from. When I get to the end of the day, I look back and see I didn't go near that border. I didn't go near that problem. I didn't go around that that snare. I watched Tiger Woods play a golf tournament one time, and and it had uh, a series of sand bunkers on one hole called the Church Pews, and it's a it's just an endless series of bunkers along one side of that fairway that people get trapped in, and then you're just from one bunker to the next to the next. And they said, "How do you intend to deal with the Church Pews?" And Tiger laughed and said, "I don't hit the ball over there." They're like, "Well, what if you do?" He said, "No, you don't understand." I don't go over there. I don't care if I hook the ball into the next fairway on the other side of the course. I'm not going to the right. I will not end up in those bunkers. And sure enough, in four rounds of golf in the next four days, he was never close to those bunkers. He played out of the forest on the other side of the hole, but he didn't go in those bunkers. When I, when I keep myself accountable to God, fearlessly searching my heart myself and asking God to search me and know me. I can live guiltlessly, fearlessly, because I know that I'm right with God. When I lay my head down at the end of the day, all I have to do is look back and say, Lord, thank you. I asked you this morning to show me what it was I needed to stay away from. And together we did it. I didn't even go close to it today, Lord. And I can fall asleep with an absolutely clear conscience. My closets are clean. My house is clean. God can show up any moment now, and I'm okay. If Jesus returns tonight, he's welcome at my house because the closets are clean. He's not going to go digging through and say, oh, Kevin, how many years are you going to hang on to this old thing? This old grudge, this old guilt, this old hang-up, this old bad habit. How long, Kevin, are you going to cart this thing around? I don't worry about that anymore. Closets are clean. Every day, I just ask God to help me walk guiltlessly and fearlessly with Him. Oh, if you watch me and if you live around me, if you read my social media, you'll understand I'm not perfect. I I say stupid stuff just like anybody else. And sometimes I get too political and there are people who who don't follow me on social media so they don't have to read my political opinions. I get that. And I try to be gentle with that stuff, but I understand people have different opinions. That's not sin. That's just how we're different. But if I cross the line and truly offend somebody, then I got something that I have to ask forgiveness for. And then at the end of that day, I take stock Did I repent? Did I ask their forgiveness? Did I take the post down if it was bugging somebody? 
guiltless and fearless, I can go to sleep and sleep like a baby. Do you have that kind of life today? Can you live guiltlessly and fearlessly in this day? Are the closets clean? Are the hallways clean? Can God walk into your house and, and sit down anywhere he wants? Dog fur's okay. We've all got that. But no no hidden skeletons, no junk in the closet. Nothing to feel any guilt over. That's the way to live. That's the way to what my friends in the Wesleyan tradition call holiness. That's the way to live a life that God looks at and says, that's my boy right there. He's perfect. Not perfect, but... If God sees me that way, I'll take it. I just want to be guiltless and fearless.